Let's pray. Father, as you meet us in your word, we ask that it would shape us, that it would form our hearts to trust more and more in you, and that form us, our lives, to be more and more like Jesus's. We pray that you would be with us sinners as we sit under your word, and that you would be with me, a sinner, as I seek to proclaim it. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So who are you really? Have you ever wrestled with that question? I feel like it can sneak up on us. I mean, in the first place, because we change as people over time, sometimes for the better and maybe sometimes not, but we learn and we grow and we change our opinions and our tastes and our preferences and, and even our bodies change, right? They, they grow older and, I mean, they say, Every seven years, all your cells have replaced themselves, right? So in the face of that, who are you, really? And even in the present, we change who we are based on where we are and who we're with. We are a certain person at work. We behave a certain way and do certain things, and we're a different person when we're hanging out with friends or when we're at home with our kids. And I don't even mean that in a bad way. That's just part of being human, right? You shouldn't at the office, act the same way that you do at a football game, right? Come in with your, your painted face and stuff. But, but if you're constantly changing, then who are you? When I was younger, there were these times that I had this dream of trying to go off and find myself, which I think a lot of young folks have, of ditching all of the responsibilities and relationships that I had and just kind of, I don't know, buying a motorcycle and going off and discovering myself but even there, is that really me, right? Without those relationships and without those responsibilities? What if you, you peel back all the layers and you find out that you're an onion instead of there being some core of self there? Or even just, we live in this world that loves authenticity, that tells you you should just be yourself. But there are moments when I really just want to kill somebody. <laughs> like they say something to me and I just want to wring their neck. And I don't, but, but in that moment, am I being inauthentic, right? Which, which me is me? Is it the me who wanted to do this, or is it the me who, who didn't do that? Who are we really? I was thinking about all of those questions of identity as I sat with this text this morning, because that question of identity is really central to what Paul is discussing here and in all of Romans 9 through 11. So one of the things about the Old Testament in Scripture, one of the reasons that I think we can struggle to understand it is because people's identities as believers just looked different than they do for us today. Their identities were caught up in this ethnic and national identity in Israel, and you couldn't pry those apart. So when people wanted to become a part of God's people in that world, they converted to Judaism. But now, in the New Testament, because of the work of Jesus, that's starting to change. Now God's people are being gathered in from every tribe and tongue and nation, but that really is what lies behind this whole set of questions that Paul's been trying to answer in Romans 9 through 11, because that raises questions of identity. How does that new identity in Christ relate to that old ethnic and national identity? And what about the promises made to that old, you know, to, to Israel? And how does that connect with the church? 
And what Paul argues in these verses is that something has changed in Jesus about how we think about identity. And I think that it's something that's really important, not just for these Jews and Gentiles wrestling with that question, but for us as we try to wrestle with the question of who we really are and how we understand ourselves. But to get there, we need to kind of take a little walk first. So let's start working through the text. Paul, in verse 30 of our text, gives this contrast that then the whole rest of what we read this morning is built on. He gives this contrast. He says, what then shall we say? That the Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but the people of Israel, who pursued the law as a way of righteousness, have not attained their goal. So righteousness. That's really how Paul is talking about identity in this passage. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but the whole idea of who we are is often really built on the idea of what righteousness is. We think that certain things are important and other things aren't. We believe that good people are one way and bad people are another way. And we do that because that sense of righteousness informs who we are. So like, like if you live by the motto, cleanliness is next to godliness, right? Which isn't in the Bible, just to be clear. But let's say that you make that part of your identity. So that, that affects how, how you behave, right? It makes you work really hard to keep everything clean and neat and organized. And it affects how you feel. You feel at rest when things are all in their place and you feel stressed out when they aren't. But more than that, that shapes how you view yourself and other people. You aren't just clean because it's efficient. You're clean because it's right. And, and when somebody isn't clean, you look at them and you judge them, right? And, and that's just part of how that identity works. And it's not just that clean person. Because you know what? That clean person who views the messy person as messy, the messy person views themselves as laid back, right? And that clean person as obsessive and not able to relax. Um, they make those same kind of moral judgments, Right? I mean, so, so like one person talks about being responsible with your money, and the other person talks about being stingy. <laughs> you know, I mean, both sides are actually making this judgment about what is righteous and what isn't, and then that informs how they understand their identity. So Paul is addressing this way that identity works. And so when he considers the Gentiles who are now being gathered in, Paul says that they did not pursue righteousness. That is, they didn't pursue the sort of righteousness that, 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 that Israel expects them to, right? The set of identity markers that, that involves trying to obey the Mosaic law and things. But they didn't pursue this path of righteousness through religion. But they've obtained a righteousness that is by faith. And then when considering those in Israel who reject Jesus... Remember, that's important in this text. It's easy to, to forget that as we're walking through it. But I mean, Paul is Jewish and lots of the early church are Jewish, but he's wrestling with this question of those people in Israel that, that reject Jesus, especially the leadership in Jerusalem. But he says that they pursued the law, they pursued religious righteousness, and because of that, they didn't attain their goal. So let's look at each of those in turn. First, let's look at how Paul sees Israel as pursuing righteousness through the law, and then we're going to look at the Gentiles. First, Paul says that those in Israel who didn't believe, didn't believe because they're seeking righteousness by the law, all right? And so let's look at how he fleshes that out. First, in verse 32, he starts to explain what he means. He says, why not? That is, why didn't they find righteousness? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled 
over the stumbling stone. They pursued it by faith, um, not by faith, sorry, but as if it were by works. They tried through their own efforts to establish this identity as righteous. And the problem, Paul then says, is that if you try to live that way, what you end up doing is dying that way. So, for example, in 10.5, he says, Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. Paul's quoting the book of Leviticus, and when it says live by them, it really means live or die by them. Um, he, he says it more explicitly, Paul does, in the book of Galatians, where he says it like this. He says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. What Paul is saying is that you can try to be righteous, you can try to follow the law, but the problem is it's, it's always going to end badly for you because the law calls us to perfect obedience and all of us fall far short of that. That, that we say, you know, that, 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 that he's critiquing these people who say, we're so great, you have, we have the law, but then back in Romans 2, he comes to them and he says, yeah, but you don't keep it. What does it matter that you have the law if you break it, just like everyone else? That was his argument throughout Romans chapter 2, in fact, and it leads him then in Romans chapter 3 to make the point that the issue with all of this is that God's law was not meant to make us righteous. I don't know if you remember that, but that's, that's his argument. God's law was not meant to make us righteous. It was meant to show us righteousness, um, but that's not the same thing. Instead, it shows us righteousness, he says, so that we can recognize our sin. So like in Romans 3, chapter 20, Paul said, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And so then that leads Paul ultimately to what he says here in chapter 10. In verses 2 and 3, he says, For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So they were zealous for God, Paul says. The problem isn't that they're not trying to be righteous. They're working hard and pouring themselves into it and running this marathon, chasing after trying to be righteous. In, in verse 1, Paul again shares this, this love that he kind of has as he recognizes that in his, in his fellow Israelites. But the problem, he says, is that they're zealous without knowledge. They're looking for righteousness in a place that they will never find it. They're running that marathon in the wrong direction. And so true righteousness, what Paul calls the righteousness of God, they're just not going to find. To put it another way, Israel is trying to build this identity for themselves by what they do. They're trying to get this self-made righteousness. And that self-made righteousness cannot give them what they're seeking. And that's not just true for Israel and the law. Like we said earlier, I think that sort of identity, make, that self-made identity, that self-made righteousness is something that all of us do. I mean, all of us come up with some code for what it means to be a righteous person. We pick some set of values and then we, um, and then we try to live by them. So I am a hard worker. I am a faithful spouse. I am a fun guy. I am a loving father. I am tolerant. I am truthful. I am broad-minded. I am correct. I am moral. Whatever it is, 
we, we pick this set of things and then we try to define those things as our identity. But the problem with that kind of self-made righteousness is that it always ends up being destructive. Really destructive in three different ways. First, that kind of self-made righteousness destroys other people. It destroys other people. Because here's the thing with any of those statements I just made, they always come with this unspoken, unlike those other people. I am a hard worker, unlike those bums. I am um, tolerant, unlike those bigots. I am a loving parent, unlike my neighbor. (laughs) I am moral, unlike those godless heathens. Whatever it is, When we construct our identity that way, when we pick that kind of code that identifies us, we always end up with an us and a them. That's how it works, right? We're defining ourselves over against those other people. And really, that's where all the divisions in our society come from, right? People have different identities, they value different things, and then they define the world so that here's us, and then here's that other group. Whether it is politics, or religion, or class, or race, or whatever division in our world exists, it's because we're all founding our identity on these things. It ends up leading us to destroy other people. And self-made righteousness can also destroy us. It can destroy us, too. I mean, imagine that you built your whole life on being a hard worker. You're competent, and you never take a sick day, and you are the best at what you do. What happens if you fail? What happens if you do get sick? What happens if um, the company has to downsize? Even if none of that happens, what happens when you have to retire? If you've built your whole identity on that thing, then you're going to end up being crushed when that thing is taken away from you. And even more than that, even if you don't fail in those big ways, none of us really live up to the standards we set all the time. I mean, none of us do, right? Those of us who talk a good game about morality, are we always moral from the heart all the time? I mean, you talk a good game about about tolerance and welcoming people. But, I I mean, I've never met someone who there isn't some group of people (laughs) that they end up finding intolerable. Whatever, Whatever code you've got for yourself, whatever way you kind of do this, you fall short and you know it in your heart. And that's because all of us on some level are hypocrites. Now, we immediately hear that and we say, well, I'm not a hypocrite like this other guy. But that just gets back to the destroying other people thing we just talked about, right? But all of us on some level fail to meet our own standards. And that's because true righteousness is something we will always fall short of. And because of that, there's actually a third reality. And this is maybe the deepest one, which is that self-made righteousness actually destroys righteousness. It actually destroys righteousness itself. I like to play games with my kids, and I don't know if you've ever played board games with little children, but the hardest part of playing a board game for a kid is not like understanding how to do it or learning the rules. The hardest part is losing (laughs) or not not getting your way, right? And what do kids do when that happens? Well, they try to change the rules, (laughs) right? They say, oh no, actually I get another card. Actually my piece is over here. They try to change the rules of the game to fit their actual circumstances. We do the same thing with righteousness if we build our identity on it. Because the problem is we fall short 
And so often what we end up doing is redefining the standard that we started with so that it fits where we actually are. Scripture speaks of the hardening effects of sin. And that's what it means, right? We say, these are my values. This is what I believe. But then something happens where we don't live up to those values. And so what we do usually is we say, well, actually, and then we start to change the rules for ourselves. But that's a problem because that actually is destroying the whole idea of righteousness. You see that, right? That if what we do is we see this ideal of righteousness and, and then what we end up doing is saying, well, okay, let me lower the bar so that, I can, so that I can meet it, that actually destroys our ability to pursue righteousness. And that's a problem because, because we need a sort of righteousness that calls us to be better than we are. Do you feel that dilemma? Um, if you build your identity on righteousness... It needs to be something that you live up to. But if you live up to it, it can't be the kind of standard that you actually need to call you to be better than yourself. You're left in this kind of, 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 of tension where you're like, what do I do with that? The more we make righteousness fit where we're at, the more we kind of like redefine it, the less possible it is for us to actually pursue it. We actually end up just being stuck where we are. So self-made righteousness, right? It destroys other people and it destroys us and ultimately it destroys the idea of righteousness itself. What we need is an approach to identity that works differently, that rests on something else. And that is what Paul calls a righteousness by faith. A righteousness by faith. So let's look back at our text, okay? Paul back in verse 30 Remember, he says, What then shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith? Now, right up front, when we use the word faith, we have to be careful. I think we have, when we hear the word faith, we get this sense of this like abstract quality that people have. It's like hope and love and understanding, right? I mean, that we talk about people of faith and just having faith in a kind of abstract way. And that's not how the Bible talks about faith. When it's talking about faith, it means faith in something particular. It means faith in Jesus Christ. Paul describes that faith in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 10. He says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So faith doesn't just mean sort of belief in general. It means two things specifically for Paul. It means believing in God's work in Jesus, and then it means professing that belief with your mouth in those verses. So first, it involves believing something in your heart, believing that God has worked in Jesus Christ to save us and make us righteous, believing that God has raised him from the dead for our salvation. And by belief, we should say, Paul doesn't just mean sort of belief like, oh yeah, I think that's true, right? He doesn't mean belief that like, it's not like belief in the idea of heart disease, it's belief in the surgeon who's about to operate on your heart. Does that make sense? By, by belief, he means trust. He means trust. Um, and he says you confess it with your mouth, which I think some people feel is kind of a weird thing to add on, because they're like, well, if I believe it in my heart, isn't that enough? 
And on the one hand, that's sort of true because remember, he doesn't just say you profess it with your mouth, right? He doesn't just say if you say you're trusting in Jesus, then that's all that matters. I mean, any more than saying that like I'm an airplane means you can, you know, swing out your arms and run around and soar up into the sky. You have to believe it in your heart too. But on the other hand, you cannot really believe that that's true in your heart if you're not willing to own it publicly, which is, I think, what Paul is saying. I, um, I remember there was a, a girl that I knew in college who had started dating this guy, and they were going out, and, you know, and he was calling her his girlfriend and stuff, but he told her, look, you know, this is great, and we're, we're, we're a couple, but I don't want my family or any of my friends to know. Is that okay? And she said, no, that's not okay, obviously, right, and broke up with him because that's not how love works. We recognize that it's that if somebody says something's true in their heart but isn't willing to own it publicly, that that calls into question what they believe in their heart. And that's what I think Paul is saying. It's easy to sort of say, oh yeah, I, you know, I believe in Jesus down in my heart, right? Um, but the heart can be deceptive. And so Paul adds on this call to confess it publicly because that's one of the best tests of whether what you're saying you believe is actually real. So there, we're called to have faith, to believe and confess that Jesus is our Savior and Lord, but how does that connect to what we were just talking about, to that idea of identity and righteousness? Well, the answer is that having faith in Christ changes the whole math of how identity works. So look at Romans 10.4. Paul says, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So first he says Jesus is the culmination of the law. And that word culmination is a fancy word. The word just means end, all right? That's the, the Greek word. He's the end of the law in two senses. First, he's the law's fulfillment. Jesus fulfills the law. He's the climax of it. That the point of the law is ultimately to point to Jesus. And in his sinless life and his death for us, he fulfills its demands. But then because of that, end also means end that the law has come to an end. Not in the sense that the moral commands of God have come to an end, right? It's not like God suddenly doesn't care whether you worship him or not or whether you hurt other people or not. But what has come to an end is um, that, that, that idea that you can take those moral commands and make an identity for yourself from them. And the reason, Paul says, is because Jesus himself, not the law, is the source of righteousness. Jesus has fulfilled the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. That comes back to something that Paul's been arguing for all through the book of Romans, that we are justified, we are made righteous simply by having faith in Jesus Christ. That when we trust in him, when we believe in him, at that moment, God makes us fully righteous. That isn't something we have to live up to, to, to get. That isn't something that we have to work for. It is declared true of us simply by having faith in Jesus because of what he's done. And it's a finished verdict. If you look at verse 9 again, just he says, Paul says it this simply, he says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Period. That's all that there is to it for Paul. Nothing else enters in. And the problem Paul is saying for those in Israel is that they're not willing to accept that as the grounds for their salvation. Back in verse 32 of chapter 9, he says they've missed God's salvation 
And he says, why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. And then in the next verse, Paul quotes from Isaiah. He says, as it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Jesus, repeatedly in the Gospels, identifies himself with that stumbling stone. He's saying that he's trying to change the way that people build their identities, but that if you're not willing to let that change happen, what you ultimately do is you trip on him, in a sense, and fall on your face. By trying to pursue righteousness through a means other than Jesus, it actually leads to destruction. But the good news for Paul is that if we trust in Jesus, then that whole cycle of self-made righteousness is ended. He says it in verse 11 of chapter 10. He says, as scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. All of which I think can sound a little abstract. So here's what that means for how you think about your identity, okay? What Paul is arguing is this simple but profound idea, which is that instead of having a self-made righteousness, we have to embrace a righteousness that is freely given by Jesus. We need to embrace this righteousness that Christ offers us. That self-made righteous, that self-made identity rests on the fact that it's made by ourselves. It rests on what we do or what we say or how we feel, or what we desire. We think that those things kind of sum up, and that creates who we are, and that is an unstable foundation. Because all of those things, what I do, what I think, how I feel, what I want, all those things can change. What happens when I do something that I don't think that I should? What do I do when my feelings shift? What Paul offers is not a kind of different self-made identity, what Paul offers is an identity that is God-given and Jesus one. It's God-given and Jesus one. So who am I? Well, first, who did God make me to be? Not what am I doing right now, but how did God design me to be? Scripture tells me, for example, that God made me with dignity and value. So that means that I am a being with dignity and value, not because of what I have to offer, not because of what I'm doing, simply because God, the creator, made me that way. Scripture tells me that God made me to seek to, to live righteously. That's true. And so I'm meant to pursue this life that God calls me to live, but not because only in achieving it can I be righteous, but rather because of the second part, which is who am I? I am who Jesus died and rose again to make me. I am righteous because of his righteousness that's given to me. I am alive because his life is flowing into me. My truest identity doesn't rest on my actions or my thoughts or my feelings or my desires. My truest identity rests on what he has worked on my behalf. I mean, that's, that's just so important. Let me, let me put this another way. It, it comes down to this. In self-made righteousness, you are what you do. You are what you do. In Christianity, instead, you do what you are. You do what you are. God gives you an identity, and that's before and apart from your works. You simply trust in him, and he gives you this new identity as his child, as righteous, as someone that is beloved by him. 
And that does call us to do things, right? We do what we are. We're called to act on that. But those actions don't affect that identity, right? Whether I succeed or fail in the calling that that gives on my life, my identity in Christ stays the same. Whether I have had a great day or a terrible day, I am still beloved by God and his child and righteous. St. Augustine puts it like this. He says, By the law of works, God says to us, Do what I command you. But by the law of faith, we say to God, give me what you command. By the law of works, we have to obey in order to get to the place where we're supposed to be. But faith is coming to God and saying, give me the righteousness that you demand. And God does. And what's beautiful about that is that that actually sets us free from all of the destructiveness of self-made righteousness. In the first place, building our identity on faith in Jesus means that we don't have to destroy other people. We don't have to look down on them, right? Because the whole point of the gospel is that I'm the them. (laughs) I'm not the good guys. I'm not the us over here feeling righteous, right? That it is Jesus who's the us, and we all are part of that other group and are freely saved by his grace. So we don't have to destroy other people to have that identity be intact. And we don't have to destroy ourselves pursuing it. He restores how we view ourselves. I mean, what do you do when you fail? What do you do when you fail to live up to your own standards, when you aren't just good enough? Right? If, if your identity rests on what you do, that's going to crush you. But if your identity rests on Jesus and the righteousness he provides, then it can't touch that. Even though you're frail and weak, um, even though you might be the, the greatest saint or the greatest failure in the world, your identity in Jesus is secure. The righteousness he won at the cross is just as real. The tomb is just as empty, and his love for you is just as certain. You don't have to be crushed seeking after that identity. And um, that kind of identity actually keeps righteousness from being destroyed too. Remember that question we asked, how do we pursue a moral standard that we also constantly fail to meet, right? How do we pursue righteousness when we constantly fall short of it? The answer rests in the gospel. Jesus has met the standard of righteousness that we never could, right? He satisfied it. And that doesn't mean that we're not called to pursue it. We are, but we're able to pursue it freely without compromising the standard, even as we recognize that we fall short of it. And we're able to pursue it freely because the ultimate verdict has already been ruled in Jesus. It's okay that we aren't okay, and we are enabled to pursue healing. So that's Paul's calling, to find our identity not in our own works of righteousness, but in trusting what Jesus has done. And as we close, let me just say one last thing that I found myself reflecting on, and that is that we as Christians have often done a lousy job of living up to that. (laughs) Um, So often, we have used Christianity as just another sort of self-made righteousness. We have often used markers of identity to try to isolate and attack other people, and we've used the law in ways that crush some of our own hearts, and we've regularly redefined Scripture's standard of righteousness to make it something we live up to. And as I reflected on that, the thing that kind of gave me hope this last week um, was um, 
I don't know if you're aware of it, but um, last, um, the 31st, last Tuesday, wasn't just Halloween, but it was um, also Reformation Day, is what people would call it, but it's the, the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther um, hanging the 95 Theses on the church door, of the Protestant Reformation. And you could say a lot about the Protestant Reformation, but it was animated by a couple of key ideas, a couple of key ideas that really helped change the world. And one of the most important of those ideas was the one that we've talked about in this sermon, that Christianity rested on faith alone in what Jesus had done, that our hope, they would say, the reformers would say, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the reason that was so powerful was the reformers' insistence that that wasn't just sort of like an idea about how you got saved once, but that that was one of the animating principles of the Christian life. That when I wake up this morning, I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Just as much as it was on the first day and just as much as it will be in the last day of my life. That when I wake up and when I go to bed and as I walk throughout my day, I am constantly called back to that pattern. To put my faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done. And to rejoice in the righteous identity that he has freely given me. It's not a box that you check. That's a way of life. And so that means that even as we fail to meet it, it is a way of life that once again today we are called to grow into. It's only by constantly returning to Jesus as our source of identity and hope that we can find the freedom to say with Paul that anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Would you pray with me? Father, I give thanks to you for the work that you've done in Jesus on our behalf. I pray that you would teach us to trust in him, to build our identities on him rather than on what we do. Pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our righteousness and hope and life. Amen. This morning we get to come to the Lord's table um, as we celebrate the Lord.